Hello and welcome to The Wealth Chat, a podcast brought to you by Kleinwort Hambers. In this series, we'll be helping listeners to make sense of the world of wealth. My name is Fahad Kamal, Chief Market Strategist at Kleinwort Hambers, and I'll be hosting today's episode. Today, we're looking at what we wish we knew about investing when we were 18, why saving is so important, how to even put your savings to work to help you achieve your life goals, and why investing is more relevant to young adults than ever before. Joining me in the studio is Mohammed Shukir, our Chief Investment Officer, who will try to unpack these weighty concepts without any jargon whatsoever. Welcome, Mo. Hi there. So, Mo, in spite of your youthful looks, clearly you have a lifetime of wealth and investment information under your belt. But surely you didn't know that at age 18. Mo, why is investing so relevant to young people today? Well, look, when you're young, that's typically when you're making some big moves in in your life. This is probably the first time that you're moving away from uh, parental guidance. Uh, You're more independent. You're starting to earn, depending on... Uh, what you've studied, you know, there is an opportunity, obviously, to maximize your earnings potential and pay down some of your loans. So these are big financial decisions for young people. And it's important that people take those considerations when they're when they're young. Yeah. And and in many ways, being young has become more difficult uh, in terms of if you just look at the basic numbers of of debt and and earning potential, etc., and buying first houses and things like that. Is, is, it, is it difficult, more difficult being young today than it was in the past? Yeah, and that's why it's even more important to make good financial decisions early on. Actually, one thing that young people have that nobody else has is time. Essentially, when you're young, you've got the opportunity to build savings over a long period of time. Uh, and that's an advantage that they have. So it's very important early on to make sound financial decisions. When you were starting out as a young person, it was probably easier to buy a house and you possibly had less debt than, than most young people will, will start off with today. Yeah, look, if you compare the dynamics today to what they were, there, there are differences, obviously. So the, the first thing is much more expensive to go to university than it was back then. House prices uh, were obviously cheaper than they are today. Uh, The difference today, of course, is that interest rates are much lower than they were back then. So that's an advantage to today's younger uh, population. But just to to give you some some context, the student debt has skyrocketed by about £9,000 a year, which means that the average student will leave about £50,000 in loans when they graduate. That's a huge starting burden uh, to start one's, one's career. And it means, again, more than ever, that you have to take sound investment decisions and financial decisions in order to repay the debt and start to accumulate some savings. Indeed, and in terms of almost most young people I know, for them, the debt burden on them from university is is one aspect. And But the second big thing that they want to do is almost take on more debt for, for a first house. Taking on more debt to buy a house is not necessarily a risky decision, actually. You know, you're buying the house partly to live in, but also it's part of a long-term financial plan. Is it probably right to say that, that a key to all of this, to some degree, is, is, is budgeting? Actually, you really have to spend time looking at all of your incomings and outgoings and assess uh, what sacrifices you're going to make. Actually, you do that all throughout life, right? It's not just when you're young. You have to essentially sacrifice maybe some short-term spending, in order to accumulate some long-term power in terms of your ability to spend uh, later on in life. And that, those are the trade-offs that we all face, and particularly when you're young. 
So Mo, I could imagine that many of our young listeners today are perturbed by your use of the word sacrifice. So by by saving, is that really a sacrifice? Well, yeah. I mean, put simply, if you're putting money away for a future goal, you're sacrificing some current spending power. The ability to spend that today, whether it's to buy something or to experience something, to go on 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 those trips that will be a bit more costly. So there is a short-term sacrifice towards achieving that long-term goal. And that's the trade-off that each person will have to assess for themselves. So indeed, it's almost in a way that the short-term sacrifice is a lot easier and better to take than the long-term sacrifice. Of course, and look, sacrifice comes in all walks of life. You think about accomplished sports people, uh, entertainers, you know, some of the top tennis stars didn't become successful by spending all of their time going out and traveling and buying stuff. They spent all of their time practicing their field. So they've made a sacrifice towards a goal that's a long-term goal, which is to be accomplished in their field. And it's the same with financial planning. You decide what's more important to you and then take decisions accordingly. So in a nutshell, it's really not about having a miserable life now. It's just being a bit more disciplined, putting something away today and still having a reasonably enjoyable life today and finding that that correct balance. Yeah, and look, it's 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 a personal thing, right? I mean, ultimately, each person will decide on what their priorities is. I guess the key message that we're discussing here is is that by putting a little bit away every single month or every single period, that gives you the ability over time to achieve a, a sizable savings, to achieve a grander goal than you would otherwise be able to do in the short run. Okay, so I understand from what you've said that we should be putting, especially young people, should be putting a part of their income away every month. Is that it? I mean, is is that the route to success? Then comes the harder part, if you like, which is where to invest it, how to invest it, how to reap the benefits from investing and not take excessive risks that can see those savings erode over time. Sorry to to jump in here, but but why do I need to do something at all? Why can't I, you know, if I've done the hard work and made the trade-offs and made the sacrifices and not gone out, you know, in the night and save the money. Why is that not enough? Because you have choices. You can either take the money that you're saving every month and stick it under the mattress. That's option A. Uh, Or you can put it in a savings account in, in the bank or invest it in the stock market as an example. And each one of those has trade offs. And I think it's important is to understand what those traders trade-offs are in order to make an informed decision. So so what is the trade-off? I mean, it sounds like the stock market and all of that stuff is, is quite risky, quite dangerous. Why, why wouldn't I just put it away under the mattress and watch it? Let's say 20 years ago, you had a very um, benevolent aunt who gifted you £100,000. And she said, well, Mo, I would like you to have this £100,000, but you're quite irresponsible. So I would like you to do nothing with it for the next 20 years in order to make sure you've still got it. Would that have been a wise decision on the uh, on part of your benevolent aunt? If you had 100,000 20 years ago, you could have bought uh, a one-bedroom flat in London. No mortgage, an, nothing, just straight 100, out 100,000, that was the roughly the average price of a, a flat in London. If you did nothing with that money... 20 years later, that 100,000 would still be worth 100,000 in terms of its actual value. But could it buy you the same thing it did 20 years ago? No, because house prices have gone up quite dramatically. The average house price in London is close to 400,000. So what's happened there is essentially your purchasing power, 
technical term, but a very important one, has diminished. With that same 100,000, you can now buy a lot less. And that is a risk that you take by doing nothing. So that's really interesting. So once again, back to your back to your aunt. Had she wanted you to have that money 20 years from then in order to protect you and to protect the value, what would the right decision have been? Well, the, the first decision to make is what is your ultimate goal, right? Your ultimate goal is to buy a house. Is your ultimate goal to start up a business? Whatever it might be, you need to define the goal. That's the first thing to do. The second thing is to define the time horizon for that goal. So you say, I want to achieve it by approximately this period of time. And once you've established that, then the third thing to establish is what kind of experience do you want to have? And I'm using the word experience in terms of your investments over that period. Are you a person that is comfortable to ride the ups and downs of investing? Or are you more cautious and you feel less comfortable with that? And again, like everything in life, there are trade-offs. And it's important that when you make those decisions, you understand what those trade-offs are. Okay, so that's really interesting. So, so the three things that everybody should do is to A, define a goal, to B, have some sense of, of the time horizon of that goal, and three, in a way, to, to understand the level of, of risks and trade-offs they're willing to take given that goal and that time horizon. Yeah, I think it's just to recognize that doing nothing is actually a dis- an active decision of doing something. What I mean by that is by not investing, by not putting some savings away, you're actively making a decision, which is to say that I'm going to keep the wealth as it is, but I'm foregoing the potential for it to grow in order to achieve my goal. So that lack of taking action is in itself has consequences and it's important to understand them. Uh, that makes perfect sense. So you, you, know, you have talked about inflation, the, you know, the, the risks of doing nothing and, and the erosion that you get to your purchasing power. To add another jargony phrase into the mix, what is compounding and how does that help you? If you have £100 and you invest it for a period of 10 years, and let's just assume for, for the example that you're earning 10% a year. In year one, your £100 would have achieved £10, so that you've got 110 after year one. And what compounding means is that now in year two, your starting point is not the 100 that you started with, but it's actually the 110. And so you then reinvest the 110 for another year. And then in year two, you achieve another 10% return. So by the end of it, you're now achieving 121. So what essentially is happening is the money that you're making on top of your initial investment is being reinvested and generating additional returns for you. And how powerful can that possibly be? Very powerful. In fact, if we just take an example now from the stock market and just look at the the FTSE, which is the UK equity market, if you invested £10,000, say in 1985, and did not achieve compounding, so you weren't able to reinvest the money that you uh, achieved from that 10,000, it would be worth approximately 60,000 pounds today. So that 10,000 has grown, it's grown quite handsomely to 60,000. But if you were to reinvest the money that you've made along the way, the dividends, it would have grown from 10,000 to 200,000. 
That's the power of compounding. So 60 versus 200, that is indeed powerful. So that is a, an amazing factor in a way. If you think about it, that most young people will always say, well, what do I, why do I need to worry when I don't have anything to really put away? But they have the most important resource in many ways. Yeah, to, to put that into some context, again, if you start investing £10,000 at the age of, say, 25 at 5% a year, that £10,000, by the time you retire, is worth £1.3 So that's the pot of money that would have been achieved from just a £10,000 a year investment at the age of 25. If you started at 35, so 10 years later, that same £10,000 a year investment would be worth a lot less. It would be worth £700,000. So that's an example of actually that shows that the longer your time horizon, you get to benefit from those savings on a year-by-year -year basis, but also the power of compounding. So while most young people will, will argue that they have less to invest, you can always argue back that you've got the much longer time horizon, which is almost more of a factor. Okay, Mo, that's actually very, very powerful. So essentially, I take your point, I shouldn't put any money under the mattress, I should put it to work, I should avoid its purchasing power eroding, and I should take advantage of the compounding factors that exist by reinvesting all my returns, which have a huge impact over time. But I guess the basic question for a young person, certainly one I would have had, is where do I put it? If it's not under the mattress, then where is it? Yeah, so there, there are a number of choices that you can make with your savings. Some of the most common ones are obviously just putting it into a bank account and just like a savings account. Uh, but there are many other ways to invest. Another one is to put it into the stock market. Essentially, you're investing in companies. And with that comes the risk and the opportunity of investing in the companies and the stock market. Um, another form of investing is investing in the bond market. Now, the bond market is essentially your lending money to companies. Instead of actually investing in them and being a part owner, you're lending them money. And for that loan that you're giving them, in return, they're giving you some interest. Hold on, hold on. So I can put it in a savings account. I can lend it to a company. I can buy shares in a company. Well, I certainly didn't know any of these things when I was younger. Can you make sense of this world for me? Let's break the investment decisions into one of three, right? So one of them is, is cash. Cash is essentially putting your money in a savings account. And for that, you get return on those cash savings. Now, we live in a low interest rate environment, so those returns are very low right now. The central bank sets the interest rate that most banks can uh, award their savers. So historically, that cash rate is about 1% a year, just to give you some context. Or you can take a second option, which is to lend money to governments or to companies. And that's what's known as the bond market. So you can invest in the bond market by lending money to either companies or governments, and you'd achieve a return of approximately 2% a year. And this is, so all of these returns, you mean, are, are after inflation? These returns are after inflation. So what that means is that your returns would actually be higher, but because inflation has gone up, it means your purchasing power, your ability to spend those additional returns has diminished. Which is the real measure we should be focused on. Correct. And that's, that's quite important, is that you don't look at your returns. For, to give you an example, if you had £100 and it's gone up to 103 by the end of the year, but 
Inflation's also gone up by 3%. Your purchasing power is unchanged. The £100 at the beginning buys you exactly the same thing as the 103 at the end because the goods and services have gone up in value. And so as a result of that, your wealth hasn't grown. All that's happened is you've just kept up with the price rises that you've seen in inflation. Right. So, okay. So that makes sense. So I can put it, I can, my first option is cash and I can put that away in my local high street bank in a savings account and earn a relatively low interest rate, albeit it doesn't move much. The second option you said was to lend it to governments and companies um, in the form of a bond. What is the other main option? Well, the, the third main option is investing in the stock market. Um, otherwise known as equities. And obviously, when you invest in equities, you're actually buying parts of the company. You'll become an owner of the company. And for that ownership, you have the potential for generating good returns if the company grows. And as it grows, then it is able to deliver more profits. And when it delivers more profits, then you get to benefit from that as a part owner. Clearly, the risk associated with being an owner is that that company may not do well. It may not generate profits. It may generate losses. It may even go bankrupt. And then you run the chance of actually losing the value of your initial investment, but even losing it altogether. And that's the risk of investing in the stock market. Now, Mo, I mean, really, how much can one possibly lose in the stock market? The potential loss in the stock market can be extremely severe. Uh, To give you an example, in the late 1920s, the stock market was in a big boom, but then it collapsed and it lost 85% of its value. 85%? Yeah, in a period of two years. That was the risk uh, of investing in the stock market back then. And it was very punishing over a very short period of time. Uh, So yes, equity market investing is not without risks. uh, But for long term investors, it's a good source of uh, generating good returns in order to achieve those ultimate goals. So sorry, I, why, why does it matter whether you're a long-term investor or, or a short-term investor if these things are so dangerous? Because equity markets tend to be very erratic, if I can call them that, over shorter periods of time. The stock market can go up by as much as 35% or down by as much as 40 or 50% over just a one-year time horizon. But if your time horizon is longer, let's say over a 10-year time horizon, that variation of returns is much lower. So your up periods and down periods tend to be much smoother. One way to think about it, if you just take the three asset classes, cash, bonds, and equities, let's just quickly give some, some numbers around them. If you're a long-term investor in those asset classes, the annualized returns, so the returns on the year-by-year basis from cash have been 1%, from bonds, 2%, and from equities, 5%. Now, that's a long time horizon. So you can just see that equities has generated five times as much as cash. So if your time horizon is a long time horizon, and you want to maximize your wealth, then equities is a good investment to make to achieve returns that are five times greater than they are from cash. So Mo, sorry, j- j- just to g- jump in there, but you know, 1% versus 2% versus 5% doesn't sound like a whole lot. It depends on your financial goals. But as we mentioned earlier, is that if you have 100 pounds at the beginning of a period, and you invested at 5%, 
within a year you've got 105, then you get the 105 to work, and then within two or three or four years, actually the pot starts to compound quite handsomely in order to achieve a sizable saving. So, I mean, let's just say, just for the sake of argument, you had 100 pounds in the beginning of 1900. So if you had 100 pounds in 1900, which is you know, for rounding purposes, 120 years ago, if you had invested it just in cash, it would be worth £317. So that's more than tripled your money by just putting it in cash, putting it into a savings account, if you like. Had you invested it in bonds, it would be close to 800 Had you put it into equities or into the stock market, that £100 would be worth £50,000. £50,000? Yeah. So that just shows you that you can grow from 100 to 50000 at approximately 5% a year. So that 5%, whilst it may sound like a low percentage, actually can generate sizable wealth. Mo, this has been fascinating. So if I'm a young person, thoroughly convinced by what you said to me today, how do I actually take the first practical steps towards making my savings find their way to a government bond or, or an equity? The first step to take is to make sure that you're comfortable in understanding all of these different things. And there's a wealth of information out there on the internet. There's lots of articles and books written on the topic. And it's, it's definitely worth taking the time to familiarize yourself with these, with these concepts. Uh, the, the second point is to speak to people that have done it. Uh, that some of those may be older people that you uh, know uh, through family and friends, but have conversations and don't be shy about having conversations about these very important topics. Uh, you know, for example, you know, when we have something that relates to our health, we're not shy to go and ask for some advice. It should be the same with our financial health, and we should uh, all seek to get that advice uh, that, that will help us. And the third step is once you've got that, a little bit of a foundation of reading and raising your awareness, a little bit of conversation here and there, is to seek some professional guidance, you know, from the banks or from financial advisors that can help walk you through the different options. Uh, And there are many options, but it really comes down to you answering some fundamental questions about what you want to achieve with that wealth. And if you have that in mind, then you can definitely take the step towards it. Thank you for joining us on The Wealth Chat. To make sure that you never miss an episode, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. I'm Fahad Kamal, and on behalf of Kleinwood Hambros, thanks for listening. This podcast is not a personal recommendation or investment advice. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. It is not intended that this podcast is distributed in or into the United States of America. This podcast is issued by the following companies in the Kleinwort Hambrus Group. In the United Kingdom by SG Kleinwort Hambrus Bank Limited, which is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. In the Channel Islands by SG Kleinwort Hambrus Bank CI Limited which is regulated by the Jersey Financial Services Commission. SG Kleinwort Hambrus Bank CI Limited Guernsey branch is also regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Both entities are also authorised and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority in respect of UK regulated mortgage business. In Gibraltar, SG Kleinwort Hambrus Bank Gibraltar Limited is authorised and regulated by the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission.